We all owe them, but very few of us know them. They are the men and women of our military and first responder communities. And these are their stories. American Warrior Radio is on the air. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to American Warrior Radio. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're broadcasting from the Four Patriots studios where they champion self-reliance. You can learn more. Visit Four Patriots, the numeral four, patriots.com. Check out their wide selection, everything from solar power generators to 25-year shelf life survival food. Use the code WARRIOR for a 10% discount on your first order. The mission of the Distinguished Flying Cross Society is to honor, teach, and publish the stories of men and women who've been awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. Now, the DFC is awarded for heroism or extraordinary achievement while participating in aerial flight. It's the fourth highest award and the highest award for extraordinary aerial achievement. The story you're going to hear today takes the phrase extraordinary aerial achievement to a whole new level, if you'll pardon the pun. Our guest today participated in what is believed by some to be the longest air battle and U.S. naval history, a 35-minute aerial dogfight. Odds were definitely not in his favor. He was up against seven MiG-15s, which were considered the best fighters of the day. At the end of the scrap, only one MiG remained airborne, and the American fighter returned to his aircraft carrier out of ammunition, 263 holes in his plane, and no hydraulics. It's an amazing story. The reason, the story behind the story, the reason you haven't heard it before, was the pot of that plane was awarded the Silver Star and was sworn to secrecy. He didn't tell anyone about that mission for 50 years. You're about to hear why. Welcome to American Warrior Radio, Captain Royce Williams, United States Navy, retired. Thank you. I'm aboard. I'm aboard. Good call. Royce, this is just an amazing story. I want you to share it with your listeners, but let's start a little bit in the Wayback Machine. You were born, or I should say raised maybe, in the metropolis of Wilmont, South Dakota, current population about 432 people. Oh, gosh, I thought it was double that. <laughs> what first led to your fascination with flight? Well, I had my first flight with my grandmother. She was 80, I was four. We flew out of a grass field in South Dakota in a Ford Trimotor. We had a, a, a good pasture landing area about a mile outside of town, good running distance. And when we'd see airplanes landing there, my brother and I would take off and go out and do our observing and uh, whatever participation uh, we could dream up. Now, you and your brother, as I understand, Roy signed up immediately after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Yes, April 1942. Why the Navy? Why not the Army Air Corps? I was only 16. I wasn't eligible for it, but I was able to get into the Minnesota Guard. So I started out in Army, and I trained in uh Camp Ripley, northern Minnesota, worked my way up to Corporal, turned 17, and then I was able to proceed and follow my dream, eligible for a Naval Aviation Cadet Program. So I switched to the Navy, and uh, the rest was a dozen or three such years. So did you fly during the Second World War? Were you deployed at all, or that, that, that everything kind of came a little late for you? Well, I was in on the very beginning of it, but the pipeline people assigned to cadet program training was so long that I was delayed in that I went to uh, so many different training bases. So I started flying 
back in late 1942. Uh, I started out in open cockpit biplanes called M3N in the war training school in uh, Conway, Arkansas. So from then on, I was flying, but I went through about six different airplanes uh, before I really was carrier qualified. I tell you, as I mentioned, Royce, my, my dad grew up on a farm uh, there in South Dakota, and I was just thinking about your generation. I mean, you went from cloth-covered biplanes to flying Mach 2 at 70,000 feet. Yeah, you know, I think about my grandfather. He w- literally went from horse and buggy to space shuttle. How important is it in your mind that younger generations hear stories like yours and, and just understand the sacrifice and just the amazing challenges and and I guess, advantages that technology brings to us as well. Well, I think it's important for those who are interested. There are so many that really are (laughs) loath to think military, but there are some out there that are patriotic and uh, to make a choice of the service and the um, specialty they'll probably get in that uh, require extra training and uh a lot of them are doing it with their eye on the future, you know, what job they might be qualified for uh, should they get out before making a career of the military. The let's uh, I want to and we're just about a few minutes before we have to take our first commercial break, Royce. But sort of frame the situation for us in Korea, as I understand it. And you, this is just a dumb civilian talking, but uh, basically, the Navy and the Air Force had Korea sort of divided. And the Navy was responsible for the northern half, and the Army had the other half. Is that an accurate summation? Well, it's twisted. Uh, The Air Force was responsible for the western half, and the Navy the eastern half. And I'm talking primarily of North Korea, but also we extended and had missions in South Korea as well. Still pretty much staying in that, dividing it pretty much down the middle. And what you mentioned, I saw an interview where you talked about a task force that was moved a little further north up to start attacking industrial targets. Was that, how long had you been in Korea when that decision was made to start moving you all up a little further north? We had been about to complete our period online. Normally, we would operate at the 30th parallel, which was basically the uh, border between North and South Korea. We were finishing it up, so we'd probably been on the long end, so to speak, for about 28 days, usually a month, and we'd go in for less than a week to uh, get repairs and provisions and uh, rest and recreation. Uh, So we were only able to really do a job within... uh, the limits of carrying our weapons of rockets and bombs and guns to fly a limited distance from the task force. So there were targets, really juicy ones, near the Soviet Union, the Yellow River, which was the dividing line between North Korea and the Soviet Union, or going farther to the west was the division between North Korea and China. This is where the Air Force was really operating, 
with their air fighting. They also had other responsibilities, and, but we were primarily air to ground and logistics, moving vehicles of any kind, trains, trucks, and a lot of close air support for our troops on the ground, both Army and Marine Corps. But that left targets that should be hit is our responsibility, but a little bit out of range. So Admiral Jocko Clark, who is the Task Force 77, designed a maneuver to take three carriers and about 20 destroyers, a battleship, and others to operate further north off of Changjin, one of the largest cities on their east coast. From there, we could easily reach the yellow. So under the cover of night, uh, we went up with that task force and um, put us within range. And that was on the first reason in the morning, which was hitting a city right on the yellow, and it had manufacturing and warehouses. And all three carriers sent missions in, but I was on the very first one. And the weather was good at that time, but shortly after that, the thermal system with a blizzard went through the cast area, and the weather turned very sour, the 400-foot ceiling and uh, blowing snow. When I got back from the first flight, I was told to get a quick lunch and be ready to go out on a combat air patrol. Okay, uh, that's a perfect place to pause, Royce. Uh, hold that thought. When we come back, we'll talk about your second mission of the day and how that turned out. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, Ben Garcia. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. As part of our partnership with the Distinguished Flying Cross Society, we're talking today with Royce Williams. Royce was involved in what some consider to be the longest aerial battle in Navy history, somewhere in the skies or over the water of North Korea during the Korean War. Royce, before we took the break, you'd mentioned you'd flown one mission that morning already, hitting some industrial targets there in the north. You came back to the carrier the weather started to get pretty salty, but basically they fed you lunch and said, be ready to, to go up again. Before we take that story forward, I think it's important for people to understand. Tell us real quick about the Panther. Was that principally a ground attack aircraft? I mean, it wasn't a dogfighter, right? It was a dogfighter, but uh, we had to take a look at who enemy might be and what our mission was likely to be and sharing it with the Air Force. Um, our um, task didn't put us in the MiG combat castle that the Earth was involved in. They were going up on missions, and if they would encounter, they would contemplate whether the odds were in their favor or not, and they could choose to fight or come back another day. And that was the main mission for the F-86. And was that, like I mentioned, that the MiG-15 was pretty much considered the preeminent fighter of the day. Was the, the F-86 a little better, keeping up with that? F-86 was better in limited areas. The MiG could go higher and a little more maneuverable, but the F-86 had a uh, hydraulic tail, which 
permitted the pilot to turn tight without uh, really stressing because the hydraulics were really moving the tail. This was important in the way they would encounter the MiGs because the MiG would come from on top, charging down at them, getting to an area of speed which uh, made maneuvering difficult. And the 86 was sort of teasing them to come down at them. And as they got uh, coming into range, the 86 would pull tighter and the MiG would then fly on the outside of the circle and go by and the 86 would then turn back in and uh, be in a, a firing position. Then uh, also that the, at great speed approaching Mach 1, the MiG uh, with that problem also had manual control for its weather control in the cockpit. And if the pilot forgot to really turn up the heat, he could easily find himself with his canopy frozen over like he's a block of ice and uh, no longer can see the enemy and has to pretty much fly instruments, which makes him a very easy target. So, Royce, you, you were flying the Panthers. I mentioned the F9F. Tell us about your second mission on November 18, 1952. You're a four-ship flight going up on a, a combat air patrol, and just take the story from there, if you would, sir. Yes, I uh, joined three others. I had not flown with any of them. I was second senior pilot. I was assigned the mission of section leader. The division leader was my roommate, a reserve pilot from uh, Michigan. Uh, so we were flight of four, uh, each having a wingman. And so we joined together as a flight beneath the 400-foot ceiling of the snowstorm then we climbed through to 12,000 feet. We arrived on top of the storm up there, and it was nice and blue sky. But while we were in that climb, our combat air patrol radar controllers informed us that there was an inbound flight from the north. They called them bogeys. So once we went through the clouds, I looked up. I could see this seven aircraft by their contrails that sort of a cloud behind the airplane. They were at extreme altitude, someplace I would not be able to go in my airplane. But we were much lower, and as they flew over, I could identify them as MiG-15, so the superior airplane. And at that time, the flight leader noticed that he had an emergency fuel warning light, and he was directed then with his wingman to return and remain over the task force. So I took the lead with my uh, wingman. Now, were the were the MiGs vectored towards the task force at that point in time? Yes. Okay. And as they passed over and uh, probably had us in sight, they turned around to the north, and I'm not knowing who they are, but I'm assuming they're probably Soviets because of our position and the Ernie morning flight where we had a target just across the river from Russia. I, as they went back, I thought they were probably just nosy and they were going back and going to land. Well, I was told to pursue them, and I climbed in their direction from 12,000 on up to 26,000 feet when they dove into two groups of three and four 
in opposite directions went through the contrail level, so I no longer saw them. They were a smaller group. Reported that to the ship, and they had also lost track of them because they were a smaller target and didn't show on the radar. So they gave me instructions to turn back toward the task force and establish a barricade between the last sighting of the MiGs and the task force itself. Surprise, they were not going into land. They were going split to back at me as a target. And in that turn, I saw four of them coming in pretty much head-on toward me and all of them shooting. At that point, under attack, I maneuvered a hard turn and ended up on the tail of their number four plane in range tracking at the solution, fired a short burst and uh, hit him, and uh, he started smoking, slowing down, dropping out of formation. Uh, at that point, my wingman chose to follow him, and I remained up there with uh, the remaining six. So, Royce, you started off two aircraft against seven, which is still not ideal odds, and now it's basically Royce against six, right? Correct. Okay. Let's take a, another break here at that point, talk about that, Royce. I find it uh, really I- intriguing, your story, and I guess to me, I, I have to ask you this, and when our listeners hear the rest of the story, they'll know why why this was such a, I don't want to say it was a burden, but how did you keep this to yourself for 50 years? Well, I guess you were under order, so that that, <laughs> that addresses part of that. Well, that pretty much was the answer, and I suppose the rest was just being, being me and what I was uh, taught by uh, every Boy Scout background, mm-hmm. Norwegian family, you know. Okay, now, does the gun camera footage, the film, was that still around somewhere, or was that thrown over the side of the ship? Yeah. No, it, it's still around someplace, and I think it's in the bowels of NSA, okay. and uh, they refuse to admit it. But I didn't get to see it because it was more or less captured right away. And uh, I think no one else got to look at it on the ship. It was sent immediately to uh, NSA and higher forces. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're talking with Royce Williams, just an amazing story of Royce versus six MiGs during the Korean War. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio, ladies and gentlemen. This is your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. We're coming to you from the Four Patriots Studios, where they champion self-reliance and provide you and your families the tools to do so. Visit Four Patriots. That's the numeral fourpatriots.com. Use the discount code WARRIOR for 10% off your first order. We're talking with Royce Williams, who has earned or was awarded at least two distinguished flying crosses. One, I think, Royce, for the mission there in Korea, and then a second one uh, during flying in Vietnam. He literally served in three wars, World War II, the Korean War, and Vietnam. When we took the break, Royce, we started off, you're in the skies over in North Korea. Were you over ocean or land? Over water. Okay. 
and you and your wingman were engaged by seven enemy MiG-15s, and you shot down one of them, but that, at that point you lost your wingman. He followed that aircraft down, so now it's Royce against six. Was this a kind of a curling and turning and burning dogfight, or was it, as I understand it, they were all, at that point, they all just started taking turns shooting at you? Uh, yes, uh, but a major part of uh, my story, I think, followed on right after shooting down the number four airplane of the flight of four. The remaining three climbed abruptly to probably at least 2,000 feet above me, and I'm tracking them because I'm in that position already. They're out-distancing me and out-climbing me, but I have them in sight, and I continue to follow them in case I get an opportunity to uh, shoot. When they got to the elevation they wanted, they uh, turned around and faced me coming head on. And the lead of all seven is the guy now shooting at me. And when he came in range, uh, I was tracking him, and I fired a short burst. And he quit shooting and uh, did a half turn away and was out of the fight as far as I knew. But I now put my attention to his wingman, who was right following him and now shooting at me. And so, likewise, when he came to within my range and had gun solution, I fired at him, and I think he died. Uh, he uh, didn't maneuver, he stopped shooting, and he slid right underneath my airplane. So maybe, uh, maybe we're down to just four. I'm sure that one was just uh, shot down the wingman, and I think the lead had some damage and uh, no longer was a real participant. But there's still four of them taking their turns on me, and uh, my main job was keep the guy that's shooting in sight and maneuver to avoid him being able to nail me. And uh, when he was through shooting, I was looking for an opportunity in case he slid by, but in most cases did what he should, uh, pull up abruptly, uh, not allowing me with the limits of my airplane to get a shot at him. On occasion, especially one time, one slipped on by and instead of climbing right away, slid out in front of me and I hit him quite close. And I had to dodge uh, in a hard maneuver to avoid running into him and the pieces of the airplane coming. So that that clearly was a kill, I'm guessing. Yes. So now oh, we're yes. down to down to how many? Two. Three. Three. Okay. So Royce against three. As I understand it, I, you weren't given credit for for kills, but that's pretty much what happened, right? Well, that's true. Uh, the people that put in the intelligence report and so far made history and uh, recommended an award for the fight didn't know what was going on. We did have a early detachment from NASA, NSA, on the USS Helen, right off the coast of Vladivostok, 
and with their capability, they were able to listen and watch, and they knew exactly what was going on. That information was so hot that it was shared in very limited uh, sources. Well, let, I guess I was kind of getting ahead of myself, Royce, because the MIGs aren't done with you yet, and you, you started to take some fire yourself, uh, one of which, as I understand it, uh, Shell knocked out your hydraulics. Uh, yes, uh, I had, uh, I think there were four left at that point. Then I was really on the tail of one that I had smoking deeply, and he was slowed down and losing altitude, and I ran out of ammunition. And as I looked around and turned, this gave the big an opportunity to settle in in good shooting position. As I turned abruptly, he hit me with a 37-millimeter cannon right abruptly in the uh, wing of the uh, airplane and exploded in the accessory section of the engine. And that uh, cut the cable through the rudder and uh, got rid of all my hydraulics and put uh, damage uh, in many ways so that the airplane was was hard to control and uh, limited what I could do with the airplane. So at that point, you pretty much best idea to skedaddle back to the task force, I'm guessing. And where was your wingman this whole time? Did you never see him again until you were back on the carrier? No, I, I don't know. He was down and never, he was up at 26,000 feet where this all took place. Hmm. But this guy that hit me now, I happened to be pointed in the direction of the task force and that big storm. It was down 12,000 feet when I was at 26. But I was diving for it, and my elevator's working, so he's sitting at perfect shooting range right behind me and just firing away. But I would push the stick forward and then pull it back and jam it, and going in cycles have made it difficult for him to hit me. And I saw a lot of ammunition going first under me, then over me, then under. And he followed me right into the clouds. And at that point, uh, he lost sight of me. So you got, uh, as I understand the story, you lost him in the clouds, but you weren't done getting shot at. The task force is at general quarters with pretty much weapons loose to shoot at anything they could. So you're approaching your task force, and then they start shooting at you. Yes. Uh, the damage I had, I thought I'd probably have to eject. and didn't want to uh, because of very likely I wouldn't have survived in the, the water at that time. I had an immersion suit, which probably extend my life in those conditions from about 10 minutes to maybe 20 minutes, but they couldn't get uh, rescue forces to me during that time. But I knew that 400 feet was uh, bottom of the clouds, so I could fly on my own without instrument control down to that level approaching the ships and I did so uh, under the clouds I'm seeing the ships and approaching they are general quarters in which case the ships are ready to shoot and are allowed to unless they know that it's friendly they have uh, no identification and they feel so threat then they're clear to shoot unfortunately the liaison between Combat Information Center and the gunnery at Liazot also broke down, and they weren't aware that I was friendly, so they uh, shot at me. 
Luckily, <laughs> they were in very good shots at that point in time. Royce, we're approaching another break here, and we come back. One of the more intriguing things about your story is what happened after you finally got that bird safely down, and that was no small feat in and of itself. I think I, I read that the or the captain actually turned the aircraft. You didn't have a rudder, so you were having trouble maneuvering, so the captain actually turned the aircraft carrier to line up with you rather than you having to line up with the aircraft carrier, and I hope you uh, bought that the commander of that ship a, a beer when you finally got down. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're talking with Royce Williams about just an amazing story of combat. Don't forget, you can find over 500 podcasts at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or on your favorite streaming platform. We're on iHeart. Any place you can find your podcast, you can find American Warrior Radio. Please share these important stories. We'll be right back. Welcome back to American Warrior Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host, Ben Buehler-Garcia. We're speaking with Royce Williams. Royce was awarded a Silver Star and a Distinguished Flying Cross for a particular mission in North Korea, but then all of that was buried. Royce, you, you finally get the bird down. Normally, I'm guessing after something like this, you would go into a room somewhere and get debriefed, but nobody wanted to talk to you. Well, in general quarters, the squadron, when the rest of my pilots, were in the ready room. This is their station for the go at general quarters unless they are in the air. At that point, the commanding officer and his flight of four were launched to be my relief. He was just under the clouds, uh, recently uh, catapulted, and he's noted that I was being shot at. He's the guy that called him off saying he's friendly. But uh, as I landed and I should return to the ready room, my assignment for general quarters came in, and uh, the rest of the pilots were there, and I went to the intelligence officer who was signaling me to come to the debrief area. And I uh, wondered what was going on. Nobody said anything, and I expected a bit of a little hoot and holler. I asked him what's going on. He said, well, he had to get this report in. He had them promise that they would not say anything until he had completed his work, made sense to me. But he didn't say anything. I said, are you going to debrief me? He said, well, I don't want to wait till the rest of the flight comes down. I want to talk to the flight leader first off. <laughs> so we waited. He was the last one to land, and he wasted a lot of valuable time. But what was going on over the radio was Washington, D.C., calling and wanting immediately reports. Well, he had nothing really to report except what he had heard in the ready room radio and on the uh, little TV thing where they sent messages. So he didn't know what happened. There was combat. People were shot down and so forth, but not knowing who or what or why. He should have been debriefing me because I was the only one really fully engaged. But we waited for the the leader, and he said, well, I've got nothing to say. He orbited over the task force. So finally it got to me, 
and by that time they were yelling at him so often that I can't <laughs> deny him. He uh, relented and ran to get to the information center and do his uh, reporting to Washington, D.C. Well, not knowing what happened, uh, he made up a story, and uh, that's what the world knew. They didn't know the extent of it or anything complete regarding the combat. So you suspect, or maybe now you know, that at that point in time, the higher-ups knew that you'd been engaged with Russian pilots in those MiGs. They weren't North Korean pilots or Chinese pilots. And pretty much the feeling at that time was, we cannot let this get out there because we don't want to kick off. Nobody wanted to acknowledge that the Russians were actually in the shooting part of that war. Well, this completed our combat tour for this first battle of the month. So we were headed to Yokosuka, and I received orders to report to Admiral Briscoe, who was the senior naval officer in the Western Pacific and headquarters in Yokosuka. And as I entered the room, he shut the door behind me, and he said, What in the world? The rescue reporting, I hadn't seen anything, but he said it's a bunch of lies, in that he knew what happened pretty much, and the people in the Ruskini did not do but they went with that story they made up. So the Admiral says, look, Royce, we're going to give you a silver star. And was that your, also your first Distinguished Flying Cross Award for that action? No, I didn't get a Distinguished Flying Cross. My Distinguished Flying Crosses were from uh, combat in Vietnam. Okay. So the Admiral says, we're going to pin a silver star on you, but you, and then he gave you orders to just shut your mouth, they pushed your plane off the side of the carrier, and that was that. No, he had nothing to do with the award or didn't talk about it. Okay. Uh, or the next thing he was saying was that we had this new capability of being able to hear and diagnose uh, the enemy's uh, actions in the NSA on the ship. And uh, he said... And I want to about to tell you, you could never tell anybody, ever. But he was telling me about the new capability and that they had uh, all the information and that I tell that young man that he got at least three. And now don't, don't say anything. <laughs> uh, of course, some others also knew about it. Uh, in D.C., they were getting the reports from NASA and uh, President-elect Eisenhower. He had declared that if elected, he would take a personal trip to Korea and see what's really going on. And at that, he said he wanted to see Lieutenant Williams. Uh. <laughs> so you got to meet the president. I So 50 years, you, you kept this secret, Royce. I know that some of, again, from my research, my prep, a lot of what starts, so the, the, the Korean, those documents are classified for 50 years, but then uh, a helping hand, I guess, in exposing this is after the end of the Cold War and, and the fall of the Berlin Wall, then we started to see some data from the Russians where they were recounting this mission, and basically they verified everything you said, uh, even down to the names of the pilots who were shot down, or, or I think one crash landed and was killed when he tried to return to base in a damaged airplane. So um, Royce did do what Royce said he did. Well, that's about it. Uh, the 
time we got the names was when Soviet Union split up and now Russia, out of Moscow, and their newspapers put articles in that uh, names of four of them that were uh, killed. Royce, thanks to a, a concerted campaign by lots of people, some former military, some elected officials, on January 20th this year, your Silver Star was upgraded to the Navy Cross, which is the second highest award for valor. How how was Royce feeling sitting there getting that Navy Cross pinned on him? The highest award the Navy Secretary could uh, award. Uh, anything other than that, the uh, Medal of Honor is up to Congress to recommend to the President. So, you, well, let me ask you this question, Royce. Can you still fit in your uniform? Can you proudly wear that Navy Cross now? I can. <laughs> well, you're way ahead of me, sir. It must be that good South Dakota farm life. Royce, we're down to just a couple of minutes. Any other thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Any advice? Um, kind of wrap up the story? Yes. Uh, a short time ago, in the latter part of April, uh, I was more or less ordered or invited to come to Washington, D.C. The president of South Korea was there, and uh, they are approaching the 70th anniversary of um, the United States and Korea, and uh, they wanted to use that uh, opportunity to award me the Kiluk Military Medal. It's their Medal of Honor. And uh, I tell you, it was a wonderful event. I'm very pleased and honored to wear it. Well, Royce, I tell you, we're very pleased and honored to have you share your story with our listeners here on American Warrior Radio, sir. Thank you for your service. And I tell you what, I I just love that, that finally the, the truth was told and, and you got your due and, and what was... Um, what was appropriate for just an amazing, an amazing aerial battle that you engaged in, uh, in effect, you know, one against seven, one then one against six. And uh, just, you know, Royce, it's one of those stories that, did you ever hear from Tom Cruise? Because I'm thinking he's the kind of guy who's saying, wait a minute, this guy actually did what I did in the movies, and maybe I should, uh, you know, send him a nice flight jacket with his name on it. But either way, Royce, we appreciate you spending our time with us, sir, and thanks to the Distinguished Flying Cross Society for bringing you to our attention. Folks, you can learn more. Visit dfcsociety.org. Royce, thanks again for your time, and and you take care, sir. Thank you very much. Maybe I'll come visit you in San Diego sometime. Come on. (laughs) Come on over. I appreciate it. There you go, ladies and gentlemen, another great show. You can find over 500 podcasts at AmericanWarriorRadio.com. Find us on your favorite podcast platform, whatever that might be. And again, please, you just heard Royce tell his story. It's an amazing story, and particularly for the young people out there, you need to share these stories and and let them know. So uh, as long as these stories are told, they won't be forgotten. And you know what they say about people that forget their own history. Until next time, ladies and gentlemen, this has been your host, Ben Bueller-Garcia. All policies and procedures are to remain in place. Take care. You've been listening to American Warrior Radio. 
Archived episodes may be found at AmericanWarriorRadio.com or your favorite podcast platform.